But tonight, it is a truly an honor and a privilege for me as an Athenian member and as a practicing attorney to welcome a true giant of the law and one of our nation's foremost experts on the U.S. Constitution, Akhil Amar. Professor Amar is the Sterling Professor of Law and Political Science at Yale, where he famously joined the faculty in 1985 at the age of 26, after clerking for then Judge Stephen Breyer at the First Circuit Court of Appeals in a courthouse a few streets over from the Athenian. Not only is Professor Amar one of the most decorated individuals in the American Academy, as the only Yale faculty member to have received the Sterling Chair for Scholarship, Devane Medal for Teaching, and Lamar Alumni Service Award, but the impeccable quality of his scholarship and legal writing is matched only by its breadth, its depth, and it must be said, its volume. He has written case books for law students and treatises for law practitioners, law review articles for academics, and has been cited by the Supreme Court more than any other modern scholar. He's written seven previous books on the Constitution, and you may recognize him from congressional testimony on issues from confirmations to impeachment, op-ed pages from the New York Times to the New York Daily News, on television broadcasts, and now you can hear his voice on the weekly podcast, America's Constitution. Um, and this wide range demonstrates how, how profoundly generous Professor Amar is in sharing his deep knowledge and perhaps even deeper respect for the Constitution with citizens and scholars alike. Tonight, we are here to hear about his latest book, The Words That Made Us, America's Constitutional Conversation, 1760 to 1840. This is the first in his anticipated three-volume work on constitutional interpretation in history that will be this generation's most comprehensive treatment of our founding document and the impact it has made on, on our nation. It will be followed by The Words That Made Us Equal and The Words That Made Us Modern. It is a source of pride for the Athenaeum to be home to George Washington's personal library, but it is Professor Amar's book that has been able to truly explain, to me at least, the brilliance of Washington's constitutional decision-making. Instincts, he argues, that were at their very best when Washington was engaging in the type of constitutional conversations that did not shrink from principal debate and disagreement even during a, such a precarious time in our nation's history. And the Athenaeum may hold the papers of James Otis and Governor Thomas Hutchinson, but is Professor Amar's book that, for me, brought to vivid life the crucial meeting between them convened in 1760, just steps from the Athenaeum, that set the course of our nation's ability to distinguish between legitimate revolution and illegitimate insurrection. In light of the events of January 6th of this year, when the importance of that distinction returned to our national vocabulary with startling urgency, this book, Professor Amar's book, could not be more urgent nor more vital. And while just a few weeks later, as we all held our collective breath until the next president could peaceably take the oath to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution, it is Professor Amar's work that explains with such richness over so many years what it is that that oath, taken by presidents and naturalized citizens alike, is actually asking us to bear our true faith and allegiance to. What is this Constitution? And finally, Professor Amar often speaks movingly of his parents' immigrant experience coming from India to Ann Arbor. So as a naturalized American myself, I recognized in the prose of this volume a little bit of the converse zeal for the American Constitution. Not a blind faith, but a carefully considered, profoundly learned, sometimes pained, but fundamentally unshakable faith in the ability of our constitutional conversations to keep our democracy vibrant and responsive to the needs of each age, and a conviction that by truly understanding this document and the people and forces that forged it, we can more wisely advance our collective work of securing the blessings of liberty for ourselves and our posterity. It is a remarkable test that he has cut for himself, but one that is more than that by Professor Amar's towering scholarship represented by this book. So with that, it is with deep appreciation and admiration that we welcome Professor Akhil Amar.
Well, thank you so much for that. I've gotten a lot of introductions over the years. I, I think that's probably the nicest one I've ever received because I, you've captured what it is that I'm trying to do in the project, which is to write for my fellow Americans. Um, what is special about America and our constitutional system. Uh, and I also write this book as a former Bostonian. I spent one of my favorite years in Boston. Uh, and um, this book actually um, tells the story of America from 1760 to 1840, and it begins in Boston. So I wanna read you some passages that, that really pick up on what you just heard about some of the, the cast of characters um, in uh, American history. So this is actually um, chapter one, the first page. It's a chapter that's called Seeds. And as you'll hear, it's all about um, Boston. The news reached America on a steed that had no legs, but promised swiftness. The merchant ship racehorse landed in Boston on Saturday, December 27th, 1760, after 40 days on the choppy ocean that both connected and divided Old England and New England. The trader bore incontrovertible tidings from early November British newspapers, copies of which Captain Samuel Partridge immediately distributed to Boston print shops for partial republication. As passengers and crew waded ashore, word also spread from mouth to mouth. The old king was dead and a young king now sat on the throne. The aged George, the George II had passed away two months earlier, on October 25th to be precise. Officials across Great Britain promptly proclaimed the dead monarch's 22-year-old grandson, King George III, and what seemed to all the London papers to be a smooth transfer of power. The transition was not seamless in colonial Massachusetts in the winter of 1760 to 61. Hairline cracks emerged that were later widened into a gulf between America and Britain as vast as the Atlantic itself. Some of the same Boston publishers who enjoyed a good working relationship with Samuel Partridge would have harsh things to say about another captain who came to town less than a decade later, Thomas Preston. Almost exactly 13 years after Partridge's crew dropped anchor, other men would drop other things in Boston Harbor. Britain would respond by sending many more vessels, warships, not traders, into Boston and other American ports. In 1775, war would break out within earshot of the taverns and alehouses where loyal British Americans first toasted young King George III. Only a decade and a half into the reign of a ruler whose accession they hailed when they heard the news, provincials in Massachusetts and 12 other colonies would cut all ties to this man and to the British empire that he embodied. The pace of the racehorse and all similar, often slower transatlantic vessels portended trouble for the empire. How could London project power over distant, populous, and fast rising American colonies in the decades to come? 3,000 oceanic miles lay between old and the old and new and the new world. Miles and sometimes months of privation and isolation 
with passengers and crew members largely cut off from the rest of humanity. Had any British minister or monarch given serious thought to colonial matters in the closing days of 1760, he would have surely appreciated the strategic need to preserve and strengthen somehow the slender cords connecting Britain and America. But the telling details of George III's proclamation meticulously documented in the London papers suggest that America was at best an afterthought for the young king and his advisors. The days immediately following the death of George II saw a profusion of pomp, pageantry, power consolidation, and legal formality in Britain. And those of you who watch, say, the Netflix series, The Crown, will get a sense of you know, what I mean here. Um, in London and other British cities and market towns, criers quickly proclaimed the old king's grandson by the style and title of George III, King of Britain, France, yes, France, and Ireland, defender of the faith. Attendants medically examined George II's corpse and laid it to rest in an elaborate multi-tiered coffin covered with a pall of purple velvet and lined with purple silk. Uh, purple silk. An Anglican church clergyman preached an official sermon under the superintending eye of the Archbishop of Canterbury. The sword of state was carried to and from the Chapel Royal. Nearly a thousand London merchants offered the new monarch condolences and congratulations and quote, all had the honor to kiss his majesty's hand, unquote. George III addressed the House of Peers and by royal proclamation prorogued parliament for several days. Okay, so lots of pomp and pageantry there. Yet no one thought to issue a timely legal directive to the province of Massachusetts Bay to tell them what to do. Official instruction would not reach the new world until mid-January. This imperial laxness threw the Massachusetts government into a quandary. Thanks to the racehorse and Partridge's distribution of London journals, Boston newspapers would soon inform their readers about all the British ceremonies. Even so, was it proper for, a mere, for mere provincial officials acting on their own without explicit imperial authorization to proclaim a new king? The English-born royally appointed Massachusetts governor, Francis Bernard, put the question to his locally elected council, who advised him to act promptly. As Lieutenant Governor Thomas, Jess, uh, Thomas Hutchinson later recalled the prevailing sentiment, quote, it was probable that many weeks would pass before orders arrived and it would have a strange appearance if all writs, processes and public acts of every kind continued all that time in the name of a king known to be in his grave. Bernard did as his council urged. But Hutchinson, also a royal appointee, although Boston-born, had doubts. Quote, there is room, notwithstanding, to question the propriety of this improvisation. Here, in microcosm, in the tiniest of legal technicalities, lay a tension that would grow, later grow to world-changing proportions. If Britain could not be bothered to pay close attention to colonial affairs, then colonists would have to manage on their own. But once independent action became a habit, where would it end? What would happen if Britain ever tried to tighten its leash? For the moment, few of Hutchinson's townsmen seemed to share his anxiety, whoever a student might have been. At noon on Tuesday, December 30th, Bernard addressed a throng from the balcony of the Boston courthouse, what we today call the old state house. Um, uh, um, the province's most majestic edifice anchoring one of the city's most distinguished thoroughfares, the aptly named King Street. 
course, today it's named State Street. And you just heard actually a, a, a mention of that building, that beautiful building. Above this east-facing balcony, a large wooden lion and unicorn, symbols of the monarchy, flanked the building's pediment. George III was now, Governor Bernard declared, quote, our only lawful and rightful liege lord, to whom we acknowledge all faith and constant obedience with hearty and humble affection. Bernard dutifully beseeched God, by whom kings do reign, to bless the new monarch with long and happy years to reign over us. By all appearances, Bernard embodied the sentiments of the many on this grand occasion. According to the Boston Newsletter, which is a local newspaper, as soon as the governor ended his proclamation with the customary, God save the king, the vast concourse of people of all ranks and attendance responded with three huzzas for the third King George. A regiment of local militiamen who mustered under arms on King Street added its own approbation by way of three celebratory volumes. Um, um, later that evening, um, the, the townsfolk marked the occasion um, at Faneuil Hall with um, candles, lanterns, bonfires, and fireworks, um, and, and everyone seemed to love it. Now, uh, the newspapers um, uh, presented it that way, um, uh, whether the newspapers were, had strong ties to the, to the London government or were a little bit more independent, uh, uh, independent. but as the new year dawned, Britain's greatest American asset was fully on display everywhere, devotion. The king and the empire obviously enjoyed in December, 1760, the deeply felt love and loyalty of the colonists. Over the next 15 years, colonial support for Britain and George uh, III would dissolve in Boston and elsewhere, and Americans would renounce their mother country and their father figure. According to one famous and oft-quoted observer, who will soon appear on stage in our story, the seeds, that's a quote, of independence were sown shortly after Bernard's proclamation in a highly technical lawsuit um, in 1761, now known to legal experts as Paxton's case, and generally referred to by lay folk as the writs of assistance case. Ironically, the case took shape thanks to the very event that had prompted such celebration on December 30th, the accession of George III. Our famous observer was right in his largest claim. The seeds of independence do indeed reside in this complex and intricate lawsuit in Boston itself. Um, the oft-quoted observer, however, was wrong on many important specifics that mattered then and still matter now but he was wrong in ways that can nonetheless teach us a great deal about both him and his world. And in the first chapter of my book, I take you the reader deep into the weeds of this case, because by the time you finish uh, this deep exploration of this case, you will have nothing less than a fresh understanding, a new way of thinking about the origins of the American Revolution and a deep appreciation of um, its most notable antagonists. And I'm going to begin now by just telling you a little bit about the story. Um, if you're a movie fan, um, this, it's the first time three really important people are going to be in a room together. And oh, later on, they're going to play huge roles. Okay, so let me just tell you a little bit about um, this story, which unfolds in um, the old state house, the then Boston courthouse. On both sides of the Atlantic, 
um, legal writs, formulaic judicial instruments telling um, uh, the addressee to do this or do that issued in the name of the king. So do the following thing, don't do that. That's what a writ is. It's a piece of paper that basically tells someone what to do or not do. Now under British law, when one king died and another king came to power, all writs expired after a grace period of precisely six months, unless reauthorized by the new monarch. One type of colonial writ irked one prominent Massachusetts lawyer. George II's death provided this lawyer a special chance to make his case. The lawyer thus did what lawyers throughout history have done. He went to court. Attorney James Otis Jr. streaked across the landscape of colonial Boston in the 1760s like a flaming meteor. His many admirers, including John Adams, ranked him a profound constitutional thinker and perhaps America's greatest orator. His powerful detractors, including Thomas Hutchinson, deemed him bombastic, erratic, and undisciplined. They nicknamed him Jangle Bluster. His widely discussed 1764 pamphlet, The Rights of British Colonies Asserted and Proved, sounded the alarm against incipient British tyranny and proposed a philosophical and legal framework for provincial rights, foreshadowing much of the prolific pamphleteering to follow on both sides of the debate and both sides of the Atlantic. He's the one who's gonna actually coin the phrase taxation without representation is tyranny. He's more important early on than Patrick Henry in, down in Virginia. But prior to 1761, Otis had yet to achieve the fame he craved. Um, 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 uh, now, um, here's one thing you need to understand about Otis. He's a self-made man. Um, uh, James Otis Sr., his father, did not attend Harvard, as would his son. Sr. had begun his career working with his hands, later taught himself law, and eventually became a leading provincial lawyer and a potent political chieftain. By 1760, he was Speaker of the Massachusetts Assembly. Um, but, you know, even though he, he rose to the top, Otis's father, he was looked down upon by um, the, the Boston Brahms, the, the, the aristocracy. Um, the, the colonel, as he was named, he was a, um, a, a honorific um, militia colonel, um, had high-born detractors who viewed his quicklime as worthy of ridicule. Um, they heaped upon him the same smirking contempt that George III and many of his ministers and minions harbored for most colonists. Not long after his death, uh, one uh, insider, a man named Peter Oliver, publicly described him as, quote, a cord waner who had worked himself into a pettifogger with a certain adroitness to captivate the ear of country jurors who were too commonly drovers, horse jockeys, and other lower classes in life. As for the colonel's high status in the assembly, quote, too great an ingredient of this lower house consisted of innkeepers, retailers, and yet other more inferior orders of men. So there's a lot of Boston snootiness about James Otis's father, James Otis Sr. Now in late 1760, when a vacancy arose on the province's highest tribunal, the five-member superior court, Otis Sr. applied to join the court and insist, enlisted his son, James Otis Jr., to make the case to Governor Bernard's inner circle. But Bernard himself, instead, at the urging of, of some of the court insiders, ends up picking 
um, his royally appointed Lieutenant Governor, Thomas Hutchinson. Now Hutchinson had no formal legal training and no extensive experience as a practicing lawyer, but he did have a sharp mind, a Harvard degree, an even temperament, exalted social status, and strong family connections. He was born in and now owned a mansion generally viewed as the finest house in town. He had a long history of distinguished public service in both elective and appointed positions, having previously served as the Speaker of the Assembly, a trial judge, a provincial counselor, and briefly the acting governor. His brother-in-law was the wealthy and well-born Andrew Oliver, and in turn, Andrew's prosperous brother, Peter, that snooty judge whom I just quoted, Peter Oliver, was one of the three sitting judges who backed Hutchinson over the pettifogger and cordwainer Colonel Otis. Also, Hutchinson's father had served on the provincial council for a quarter century, and his father, Hutchinson's paternal grandfather, had also served on the council and as chief justice. So when Governor Bernard, London's man, picks the high-born lieutenant, Thomas Hutchinson, over the self-made um, uh, Colonel, James Otis Sr., the Otis's father and son smoldered with rage. At almost exactly the same moment, George III becomes king and the legal need arises to renew all these writs. This gave Otis Jr. a chance to kill multiple birds with one stone to ostentatiously display his legal virtuosity and classical learning, to vindicate his family's honor, to defend American liberty, to ingratiate himself with Boston's leading merchants and the massive provincial consumers and voters, to smite the royal insiders who had snubbed his family, and to do all this poetically in a case brought before the very tribunal that had blackballed his father, a tribunal now presided over by his new nemesis, Thomas Hutchinson. The legal issues at the crux of this complex case involved writs of assistance, intricate legal cogwheels that helped drive the machinery of British anti-smuggling laws that in turn implemented British revenue, trade, um, and defense policy. Um, and then I go on to give you a little bit more detail, legal detail about these writs of assistance. Essentially, they, they seem to authorize customs officials to basically break into any house they want to search for smuggled goods. Um, um, but several things, and they had issued in colonial Boston um, in, in previous years. Uh, but then several things happen in tight sequence that threaten to unsettle this whole system. First, there's a magazine article in London that appears um, and begins to circulate informally among lawyers, judges, shippers, and merchants in Boston. This article in March, 1760, asserted that these legal writs of assistance were strictly limited in Britain and that British judges did not confer on customs officials um, sweeping and lifelong authority to search seas, break open doors, repel resistance, command assistance as the Massachusetts just judges. And they're called risk of assistance because not only can the customs officer break into your house, he can compel anyone around, a constable or just a passerby to help him, to assist him um, in his um, search efforts. Um, so, but this London magazine said, oh no, that's not how it works in Britain. Rather, the unnamed author of this British magazine article says that British writs for smuggled goods were specific, not general. Um, 
they were like common law uh, warrants for stolen goods. Remember, these are warrants for uh, smuggled goods, but they're like, says this um, uh, fellow in London, um, writs for um, stolen goods under common law. And like these common law warrants, they basically um, um, uh, only uh, require um, oath and specific information. In other words, the writ, says this fellow in London, requires an oath from a customs officer that he had specific reason to suspect a particular place of being a, an illegal hideaway. A proper writ had to be issued on, by an officer on a case-by-case, search-by-search, place-by-place basis, not once and for all for the life of the king. Now, if this were indeed true, the provincial superior court um, had, had blundered badly in issuing much broader writs in the previous decade. So that's one thing that happens. There's this London Magazine article uh, that starts to circulate in Boston. Second, George II dies. And um, uh, under the statute that I described to you, all the writs are gonna lapse in um, six months. Um, and um, that's gonna um, give a ch- uh, the judges a chance to correct their mistake if a mistake it was. Third, James Otis Jr. was now on the case. Shortly after the snubbing of his father in late 1760, he resigned his own official position um, in the government, uh, a position that would have required him to defend these writs of assistance, and he loudly switches sides and agrees to represent pro bono, he proclaims, prominent Boston merchants who hated the sweeping search regime then in place. Now, why did they hate the regime? Because many of them were smugglers, just like today, you know, many drivers are speeders and many pedestrians are jaywalkers, many entrepreneurs are tax evaders. So Boston was a big smuggling town, truth be told. Okay, the scene is now set for a confrontation in the highest court of the province, the old state house. Um, meeting in late February, 1761, on the second floor of the courthouse, just paces away from the balcony where Governor Bernard had proclaimed the new king, and also paces away from the assembly chamber where James Otis Sr. presided as speaker. Only two persons in attendance left posterity with a detailed firsthand account of the event. Uh, Remember, James Otis is the lawyer, and only two people left you know, basically um, descriptions of what had happened. One memorialist was the court's presiding officer, Thomas Hutchinson, who doubled as Royal Lieutenant Governor and tripled as an elected member of the governor's council. Hutchinson would later become, thanks to the 1765 Stamp Act crisis, the 1770 Boston Massacre, and a series of high profile 1773 incidents, the Hutchinson Assembly Debate, the Hutchinson Letters Affair, and the Boston Tea Party, He was later to become the most prominent American-born loyalist on the continent. So if you want to understand the American Revolution on both sides of it, you need to understand Thomas Hutchinson. He's the most important American-born person who stays loyal to the king. And he was the presiding officer, the judge, and he left um, uh, some accounts of, of what happened. That's one person. So I got him in the room with James Otis, who was going to be like the Patrick Henry of the American Revolution of New England. The other memorialist, was a fledging lawyer from nearby Braintree, John Adams. Adams would later become, alongside George Washington, Ben Franklin, Alexander Hamilton, um, Thomas Jefferson, and James Madison, alongside those other five, one of independent America's six most important founding fathers. Now, the 1761 hearing was Adams' first of many appearances on history's grand stage. 
And by his own admission, he was at this time a bit player, listening and scribbling a few notes. But I got in the same room for the first time ever. These three people were going to be the mo among the most important people over the next 15 years. Adams, the young lawyer, um, Otis, the, the, the oral advocate, the fiery, the firebrand, um, a defender of American liberties, and the traditionalist judge, um, Thomas Hutchinson. If you want a picture of him, think, you know, a decent, uh, uh, but traditional, I think like Mitt Romney or something like that. Okay. But I got these three in a room together. Writing half a century after the fact, Adams endowed the 1761 event with epic significance. This is a quote. Then and there was the first scene of the first act of opposition to the arbitrary claims of Great Britain. Then and there, the child independence was born. The seeds of patriots and heroes were then and there sown. Adam, that's all a quote from Adams, 50 years later. Adams was particularly captivated by Otis's performance as a lawyer and thinker. Quote, Otis was a flame of fire with a promptitude of classical illusions, a depth of research, a rapid summary of historical events and dates, a profusion of legal authorities, a prophetic glance of his eyes into futurity, and a rapid torrent of impetuous eloquence, he hurried away all before him. Every man of an immense crowded audience appeared to me to go away, as I did, ready to take arms against writs of assistance. That's Adams, 50 years later. Now, my narrative voice. There's some truth here, some confusion, and some myth-making. And over the next um, several pages, I try to filter out fact from fiction and tell you actually what this event was really all about. Um, and Adam, old Adams was right. That's actually where it all started, but he turned out to be wrong on lots and lots of details that are really important um, to understand what the American Revolution was all about. And that's what I tell you about for the rest of chapter one. Um, um, but I want to read you a couple more passages um, from, from the book. So, and, and if you want to read chapter one and you're not ready to you know, buy the book or anything, it's all um, uh, freely available available on amazon.com. If you just do look inside, all of chapter one is, is there for your perusal. Um, and so by the end of chapter one, and I, I do take you through the weeds a bit, but by the end of chapter one, you will understand how it really did all begin in Boston and what it was all about. And all about years before most historians conventionally begin the imperial debate. They tend to start the story in 1763, but in fact, it really starts in 1760 and 1761. Adams was right about that. Um, even though he, he bungled all the details. Let me flash forward now to 1765. And in the meantime, and, and what's happened in the five intervening years is um, um, Otis continues to rail against Hutchinson in all sorts of ways. Hutchinson rules against Otis in this case, and Otis is upset, and he manages to get himself elected to the, the Boston Assembly, just like his father did, and he's aiming for to be speaker, just like his father. And Britain starts to impose all sorts of taxes that Americans don't like, most famously the stamp tax. And so now we're going to see these same characters kind of Otis and Hutchinson five years later. So this is 1765, this is from chapter two. Bostonian and Boston, Bostonians do not like paying taxes. They, that's why they, they, were, they were smugglers to begin with. And, and now these new taxes, the Stamp Act uh, tax is being imposed. Bostonians took to the streets. Newspapers reported that Andrew Oliver, 
Peter's brother and Hutchinson's brother-in-law, remember we talked about Peter and Andrew way back in chapter one, newspapers reported that Andrew Oliver, Peter's brother and Hutchinson's brother-in-law, would be named the official stamp distributor. In mid-August, 1765, a crowd reached him before his formal commission did. Mobber, and, and, and you heard Ronaldo talk about mob action and, and the storming of the Capitol, January 6th. I talk in this book about what kind of mob action is permissible and whatnot and why and how to think about all of that. So there are contemporary resonances to all of this. So in mid-August, 1765, a crowd reached um, uh, Oliver before his Stamp Act commission did. Mobbers destroyed the rumored site of his future stamp office, ransacked his house, and dangled a, a crude depiction of him from a tree. Genteel patriots, patriot leaders advised him to forswear his expected appointment. He did as told. Better to be hanged in effigy than in person. So this is kind of raucous. These colonial moves, say I, were more than merely conversational. This is not just polite talk but they were generally proportionate and in their own way legalistic. Parliament had not heeded the emphatic messages sent by leading colonists and leading colonial institutions, North and South, led by James Otis. They're petitioning um, Parliament to, to change these taxes and Parliament isn't listening at all. So conversation alone had not worked, nor would ballots work. And this is a key thing to understand. That was the rub. Bostonians could not simply vote the British bums out because Bostonians were legally ineligible to vote for parliament. Thus, when parliament resorted to the force of law, patriots needed to respond and did respond with a counterforce of disobedience. Surely, Americans individually were within their rights to eschew British imports. True, organized boycotts put public pressure on those wanting to continue business as usual, um, but public pressure also existed on election days in 18th century America, where public voice voting was common and paper ballots were not entirely secret. Even the ugly pressure visited on Oliver had an arguable legalistic logic and touch of poetic justice. If royal officials did not respect the property of the colonists, why should colonists respect the property of royal officials? Let them have a taste of their own medicine and in a small measured dose targeting one pivotal off official and putting no more pressure on him than necessary. Without Oliver's forced resignation, a far greater threat to property would have arisen. Had Oliver opened a stamp office and started issuing stamps and stamped paper, and had even a modest minority, say a fifth of Bostonians started buying and using the stamps and paper, well then the British ministry could have claimed that Bostonians by their actions had actually consented to the principle of plenary parliamentary tax authority. In a British constitutional system driven largely by unwritten custom and practice, colonists needed to engage in modest self-help illegality precisely to preserve their legal claim that they haven't consented to anything. So that's the best argument I can make for, for, for this initial um, uh, um, mob action, which is in its own way, it's not perfectly legal, but it's, it's, it's cautious and careful. Alas, things did not stop at Oliver. On August 26, 1765, Boston rioters vented their fury upon Thomas Hutchinson. The mob that night was in the words of one eminent historian, um, Bernard Bailey, more, quote, more violent than any yet seen in America, 
more violent indeed than any that would be seen in the entire course of the revolution, unquote. Hutchinson barely escaped with his skin and his Boston mansion and surrounding gardens lay in ruins. Not content to wreck the building, destroy the trees, loot ordinary household items such as silverware, china, carpets, bedding, clothing, furniture, paintings, and ready money, the rioters also assaulted the very emblems and instruments of reason and discourse, the very tools of America's fledging constitutional conversation by destroying or hurling into the mud many of Hutchinson's books and papers, um, uh, things that he had collected over the course of 30 years so we could write a, a history of, of Massachusetts. There was nothing proportionate, poetic, or conversational in this terrifying and grotesque incident. True, Hutchinson had a long list of royal offices and preferments. True, he was a stalwart supporter of his king, his king's British ministers, and the king's British parliament and provincial government. Um, uh, uh, um, uh, true, Hutchinson had not, a la Otis in 1760, resigned any of his royal posts in protest of the Stamp Act. True, Hutchinson had not publicly promised to disregard the law if future litigants attempted to file unstamped legal papers in his courtroom once the act went into effect. And it surely seems suspicious that his brother-in-law apparently stood to profit handsomely from the act. Ooh, so it doesn't look good for Hutchinson at first, but looks aren't the same as what is. How things look aren't the same as what actually is. Unbeknownst to the crowd, Hutchinson had consistently opposed the Stamp Act in correspondence with London. He had played no role in procuring the stamp commission for his in-law, who likewise had done nothing to solicit the commission. Over many years, he had also repeatedly won elective positions, including the speakership of the assembly and his current seat in the council. As to him, Boston ballots did count. Voters and elected assemblymen who chose the council were free to humiliate him as election, at election time. Elect, uh, attacking an elected representative, as rioters did that day, was attacking representation itself. Just like, I wrote this a year ago, two years ago, but just like the January 6th storming, you see, that's attacking people who were duly elected. That's not the way we do things in America. Um, attacking an elected representative as rioters did that day was attacking representation itself. The mob had become a tyrant. The morning after the riot, Hutchinson appeared in open court in order to make a judicial quorum. In dramatic contrast to his scarlet robed colleagues, he showed up in rumpled plain clothes. Um, um, I'm going to read you what he says because it was um, he, he gives a speech and this is recorded by someone who's actually a friend of Adams. His name is Josiah Quincy, um, and so he's he's on the Adams Otis side, but but he's a young Harvard student and he goes to court and he's moved to tears by what he sees. Here's um, a Thomas Hutchinson the day after his house has been destroyed. Gentlemen, some apology is necessary for my dress. Remember, he doesn't even have his robes. I indeed had no other destitute of everything, no other shirt, no garment, but what I have on and not one in my whole family in a better situation than myself. I'm obliged to borrow part of this clothing. I am innocent and all the charges against me are false. I call God to witness that I never in New England or old, in Great Britain or America, neither directly nor indirectly was aiding, assisting or supporting in the least promoting or encouraging what is commonly called the Stamp Act. But on the contrary, I did all in my power and strove as much as in me lay to prevent it. This is not declared through timidity for I have nothing to fear. They can only take away my life. And he's a religious person, you see. I pray the eyes of the people will be open 
that they will see how easy it is for some designing wicked man to spread false rumors, raise suspicious and jealousies in the minds of the populace and enrage them against the innocent. I pray God give us better hearts. While the emotional damage inflicted on Hutchinson was incalculable, um, and, and may partially explain some of the mistakes he's gonna make later on, he estimated that his property, uh, his property losses were about 2,500 pounds sterling. Eventually he received more than 3,000 pounds from the province itself. The money came from elected, the elected provincial assembly um, uh, and the funds appropriated came from the public treasury, which in turn came from taxes paid by the assembly's constituents. Um, because people thought that what was done to Hutchinson was wrong, you see, and, and so they said we better compensate him for this. Whereas the rioters' actions had embodied revolutionary uh, fervor at its worst, the eventual provincial decision to make Hutchinson whole based on taxation with representation was patriotism at its best. Now I'm gonna end with um, a short little passage um, about um, what happens after the Boston Tea Party and how Hutchinson has become governor and they've kind of, and Sam Adams, um, John's cousin has made a monkey of, of Hutchinson. Um, and I'm just gonna read you another two pages and then um, we have a conversation. Um, remember Thomas Hutchinson stays loyal to the King, but, um, but, he, uh, but I'm gonna tell you, even though I'm on the Patriot side, I'm on the revolutionary side, not everyone who disagrees with you in every way is evil in every way. And I want you, the audience, to see Hutchinson, to see um, um, the, the best of American loyalists as well as the best of the American patriots. Thomas Hutchinson was smart, brave, honest, pious, industrious, tolerant, even-tempered and public-minded. He loved his hometown, that is Boston, and he loved his king. Had he lived only 20 years earlier, he would never have been obliged to choose between them. He was a scrupulous and accomplished historian. But like many an historian, he had mastered the past better than he understood the present and far better than he envisioned the future. The world around him was churning furiously, giving birth to new kinds of discourse and new forms of democracy and generating new patterns of legitimacy and civic virtue. Boston was at the epicenter of the earthquake, but Hutchinson could not feel the ground shifting under his feet until he was already plunging into disaster. Although Hutchinson loved his hometown, he did not prize all its people, especially those born well below him in the status hierarchy. He did not connect instinctively, viscerally with middling and common folk. The viciousness of the attack on his mansion in 1765 flowed from his lack of feeling for many Bostonians and the reciprocal lack of feeling for him, whether fair or not. And in fact, it was in many respects unfair. Otis's sustained campaign to demonize Hutchinson had worked. Um, Hutchinson inspired fear and commanded respect, um, but, but not quite love. Um, um, in the end, Thomas Hutchinson was doomed by his too strong sense of hierarchy and his too weak understanding of the intense yearnings and deep emotions of the men around him. Men who were perhaps um, his social and intellectual lessers, but were nonetheless his legal equals, as another notable American named Thomas, Thomas Jefferson would soon famously insist. Also, from a very young age, Hutchinson had shown no sense of humor. 
With their jaw-dropping, tea-splashing coup, the Sons of Liberty had made a fool of him in a grand carnival and on a world stage. Temperamentally, this old-fashioned, straight-laced man could not quite laugh at himself and adjust as the most adept political leaders in the new world of Borning would eventually learn to do. Think of, say, Ben Franklin. Hutchinson um, had precipitated the tea crisis, which I've told you about in, in the pages before, by his own rigidity. He thought he had the patriots in a box, but in a maneuver worthy of Wiley Odysseus, the Sons of Liberty had outwitted him. Had he been their equal in the new conversational style of democratic politics, he might have countered with his own beau geste, something like this. This is what he should have done if he had been as clever a politician as Samuel Adams. He should have given a speech like the following. My dear fellow subjects of His Majesty's province of Massachusetts Bay, as you once indemnified me in my hour of loss, 1765, I will now indemnify you. For the moment, I pledge to pay for all the damage done to the tea out of my own pocket, some 10,000 pounds, though this promise that I now make may well ruin me and will at least undo almost all my family's fortune, hard won over many generations of honest toil. For if I do not pay out of my own pocket, I fear that His Majesty's government in London will make all of Boston pay, and this inevitable insistence will only further estrange His Majesty's government from the good people of this province, and the good people of this province from His Majesty's government. This must not happen. We are one people and we must never become estranged. We must never become enemies. You remember this is what he should have said, but he didn't say any of this. But I also say this, those who did this foul deed are cowards. They have not acted in the light of day and with their faces undisguised. Remember, they disguise themselves as Indians. I now say to them, unmask yourselves. If you are proud of what you've done, step forward and own your own actions. I, in turn, reserve the right to bring a civil lawsuit against each and every one of you for your trespasses. And I shall be content to let an honest jury of our fellow subjects apportion the final cost between us. But Hutchinson, being Hutchinson, did nothing of the sort. Politically, he lacked flair. Personally, his extreme acquisitiveness made it unthinkable to throw away his fortune in a flourish even though such an act might astonish and inspire the masses as the Sons of Liberty themselves had astonished and inspired their audience. In the end, Thomas Hutchinson proved unable to keep what was his anyway. Hobbled by the Tea Party crisis, he eventually found himself in exile in Britain. After independence, the new Patriot government of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts seized much of his property, along with the property of other loyalist exiles to fund the American Revolutionary War effort. Thomas Hutchinson's favorite residence was a beautiful country estate in Milton, six miles south of his once stunning but later ruined mansion in Boston proper. In the early 1780s, this elegant Milton estate came in the possession, into the possession of Mercy Otis Warren, daughter of Colonel James Otis Sr. and the sister, and the sister James Otis Jr. So that's a kind of poignant end, at least to this little part of the story with Otis and Adams and Hutchinson. Oh, but I promise in the rest of the book, you're going to hear a lot more about John Adams and about Abigail too. Um, and um, lots of Boston stories, lots of stories more generally about the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, and the Bill of Rights. I'd love to hear your comments and questions.
Thank you so much. Uh, we really appreciate that extraordinary uh, winding of a tale that it, that uh, explores how you're able to connect the constitutional legal principles with the personalities larger than life, some not as large as they need to be, as you've just described, and how uh, we can understand the, the context of some of the choices that were made by our founders at that time. We, we do have a number of questions. Uh, I'll, I'll read a few of them. Um, first, uh, uh, first question is about your 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 agreement or non-agreement with the, an assessment that had been made uh, by John Adams post-war that only about a third of the colonists supported the Patriots, uh, a third were loyalists, and about a third were essentially neutral. Uh, interested in your thoughts on that. Yeah. So John Adams says lots of things over the years about this, and, and depending on when he says it, it's slightly different. Um, and um, here's what I have to say about um, uh, that um, uh, um, issue um, uh, in the book. Um, so um, uh, um, um, I, I, I say um, that um, uh, the, the um, uh, American independence um, uh, uh, in the end you know, has to win the hearts and minds of um, uh, Americans. And in general, it did actually. Um, so let me give you actually some, some, some data. Here's what I say. Not all Americans were persuaded. Many remained loyal to the king. Some loyalists stayed, others left for Canada, Britain, the West Indies, and elsewhere. Um, many other Americans tried choosing sides, to avoid choosing sides. But an overwhelming number of Americans in the 1770s did affirmatively choose to side with the Declaration of Independence. Modern scholars have estimated that loyalists likely accounted for 20% or less of America's free population. Now it's always hard to figure out like where ordinary people are. So here's the what I can measure, but that's the best scholarly um, account today. Only 20% were loyalists. But here's what I can count. I can count opinion leaders, people who actually matter, people that we've heard of today. Um, so I want you to actually hear about Thomas Hutchins because he's a significant person. But what I want you to understand is how few of the really great Americans actually side with Hutchinson. So here's what I say. Among America's top political leaders, loyalist ranks seem remarkably thin. The American born loyalist of greatest ability and accomplishment was without doubt Thomas Hutchinson. And then I mentioned Pennsylvania's Joseph Galloway, um, uh, Massachusetts's Timothy Ruggles, uh, another fellow from Maryland named Daniel Delaney, and Washington uh, and Franklin's uh, uh, illegitimate son, William Franklin. Okay, so those are some prominent people. Um, they're the most prominent on that side, but almost none of them actually were elected officials in America into the 1770s. So, so Americans who, you know, who are actually not picking people who are loyalist in, in free and fair um, elections. Um, so the declaration succeeded in its main mission, the Declaration of Independence. It won the hearts and minds of the lion's share of America's genuine leaders from Franklin and Washington on down. And then I give you a list of like, who do I mean? Cause, cause when I'm, and, and then I'm gonna tell you how impoverished it is on the other side. So on one side we have 
from Massachusetts, wealthy merchants like John Hancock and Elbridge Gerry, respected artisans like Paul Revere, active printers like Benjamin Eads and Isaiah Thomas, Rhode Island Stephen Hopkins, Connecticut's Roger Sherman, John Trumbull, Matthew Griswold, Samuel Huntington, New York's John Jay and the, the, the Livingstons, and New Jersey's um, Princeton president John Witherspoon and the great inventor David Rittenhouse, lawyers in Pennsylvania like James Wilson, um, radical scribblers like Thomas Paine, civic leaders like Benjamin Rush, in Delaware, Thomas McKean, I'm going from north to south, in Virginia, George Witt, Patrick Henry, Thomas Jefferson, the Lees, George Washington, of course, Edmund Pendleton, okay. Um, and on the other side, apart from those five people that I just mentioned, who have you got? The only person you've got is Benedict Arnold. And it might seem a cheap shot to mention Benedict Arnold, but here's the key. Britons don't celebrate him. Americans don't celebrate him. Americans publicly mocked him at the time and generated parades and, and, and other things. So um, it's really hard to measure. And, you know, and Adams is just coming up with a number, you know, kind of on the fly. And he comes up with different numbers over time. But the scholars say 20%. And when I actually look at opinion leaders, it seems to me much less than 20%. A lot of impressive people, you know, the Washingtons and Hamiltons up and down the continent on one side, you know, only Benedict Arnold and, and a handful of us. That's why I want to tell you about Thomas Hutchinson, because in my view, he was the best person on the other side. I hope you heard me say he's kind of admirable. He has a lot of virtue. Um, in my view, as I said, he's a kind of Mitt Romney-like person. He's a traditionalist, but a good and decent person. And I want you to know good, some good and decent people were on the other side, but not very many of them. And, and the American electorate turned against them and voted for the Patriots again and again and again. Thank you. Um, we have a number of questions. I'll try to compact a couple of them just for time. Um, one is a, a question about uh, kind of the written philosophy of uh, versus the unwritten philosophy of the revolution. And I think part of that may be a reference to your prior work on the written constitution and the unwritten constitution. Um, who would you say is the champion of the written philosophy of revolution versus the unwritten philosophy of the revolution? You can't have one without the other. For example, the writing doesn't tell you how to interpret the writing. You know, what are the rules of interpretation? Those themselves are unwritten. Um, and, the, and, and some of the unwritten is written. It's the Declaration of Independence. Yes, it's not the written constitution, but it's a written document. So I believe that written and unwritten fit together. I'm going to tell you, I'm going to lavish attention on the the Constitution and its text, because I want you to know it backwards and forwards and sideways. I always carry at least one you know, copy with me at all times. So yeah, I want you to know that, but it's embedded in a larger culture, a larger world, uh, the words of the Declaration of Independence, the words of um, these pamphlets, um, newspapers, everywhere. America is born in a newspaper culture. Um, it's highly literate. Um, ben Franklin's a newspaper man. Um, and um, Publius, um, the Federalist Papers are newspaper op-eds and they're written by um, Madison and, and um, uh, Hamilton among others. And, and the Declaration of Independence by Adams and Jefferson is written so that it can be published in full in newspapers. And even George Washington, even though he's not a newspaper scribbler, reads more newspapers than anyone else and is mentioned in newspapers. He has gotten himself mentioned in 50 newspapers in 1754, when he's age 22, he's media savvy. 
So um, written, yes, um, but also unwritten, if by that we mean written things, but aren't the written constitution, newspapers, pamphlets, the Declaration of Independence, et cetera, et cetera. My goodness, well, uh, we, we are uh, at our time, but uh, most of all, we wanna thank you for your time in sharing with us uh, this incredible work, both work of uh, the, the, the book itself and your extraordinary presentation and bringing it to life for us in miniature here. So um, I'd like to thank you for taking the time to be with us this evening and uh, thank all of you who participated. We hope that you will join us again for another uh, presentation here at the, at the Athenaeum virtually. Uh, the schedule is on the Athenaeum website and we hope that we will see you again uh, sometime soon.